This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Well, hello from Kalamazoo, Michigan. This is John Hall. I'm here at the Michigan Brewers Conference, their their annual winter gathering. And uh, we're here at the lobby of the Radisson Hotel, so you might hear some elevator dings in the background and conversations happening around us along with some uh, some piped-in lobby music in the background. Uh, but hopefully all of that will just be secondary to what's going to be, I'm sure, a fun conversation with my guest today, Ron Jeffries, the founder of Jolly Pumpkin Artisan Ales uh, here in Michigan. And Ron, first of all, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, I, I asked you before, um, and, and I think it's just a fun way of starting off, if, if somebody is not familiar with your brewery, is there an elevator pitch? Is there is there a way that you can describe your brewery? Well... It's complicated. Our, our, our company is a complicated company that, when looked at from the outside, is difficult to describe to make sense to people because we do have our production facility in Dexter, but we also have restaurants um, around Michigan and now in Chicago, and we're expanding that business too. So it's kind of two different facets, a production distributing brewery and then restaurants that promote those brands that we brew we also do wine cider and distill as well so what we've done is with the cider and the winery is again they're kind of separate companies but all under the same umbrella company and it gets complicated your main beer focus though uh, is it safe to say sour absolutely sour and hoppy beers okay so yeah what's the current state of sour beers in the country right now You've been doing this for a long time. You've, you're, right. uh, you know, where do you consider when, a pioneer? Yeah. When we opened in 2004, we were the first 100% oak-aged, naturally soured beer brewery in the country, at least in a very long time, but the only one operating then. And so my perspective now on the sour industry is I don't, I don't know. I'm focusing on what I do, and I'm trying to ignore all the the chatter, if you will, on the outside. I think there's a lot of different things going on. There's a lot of exciting things with people uh, doing kind of what we do, but a little bit more scientifically, isolating local wild yeasts and making beer with that, and that can be really interesting. Uh, there's, of course, a lot of barrel souring. There's the you know kettle souring. There's all sorts of souring going on. But I think what people need to pay attention to is the actual flavors that they're creating. I spent a little time with Lauren Salazar this summer and working with her on her program and seeing what she's doing and really looking at the flavors. And for me and my team, we don't have the same sort of uh, analytical equipment that they have, but we, we do these tests where we taste things, we talk about things, we get flavors. And I think that in sour, not enough of that is happening where people aren't really tasting the beers and thinking about those flavors and those compounds and are they really desirable or not. So where is sour going? I don't know, but I hope that it's getting a little bit more analytical. Sounds so like scientific and boring, but kind of at least sensory. Yeah. 
I want to back up then. Because 2004 doesn't seem like that long ago, although it, with each passing year, it, it, it certainly grows. What inspired you to walk that route? I mean, was it just because nobody else was doing it? Was it... Uh, Cantillon. It was Cantillon. Yeah, Cantillon inspired me. Uh, I had been brewing for other folks for about a decade before we started Jolly Pumpkin. And we, my wife and I, Lori and I, had been working on the business plan for about that long. When I started brewing for other people, my goal was to open my own brewery. And so we'd been working on the business plan, and as the craft beer industry was evolving and people's you know, flavors that people were interested in were changing, the business plan was evolving. And one day in the backyard, having uh, some wild, funky beer, I said, why don't we just do this? And Lori said, yeah, why don't we? And I looked at her and I said, are you sure? And she said, yeah. And so that's where we went. But yeah, Cantillon was the first brewery that I worked at. Uh, Joel Shelton came in with a bottle of Cantillon right when the Shelton brothers started importing it. Okay. And uh, it was a, kind of a, one of those moments. Game-changing, sounds too quote-unquote. But it's still like bulb above the head. Yeah, just sort of an epiphany. Uh, an eye-opener, which now I know means a beer first thing in the morning, <laughs> yeah, which, but I uh, thought was an epiphany. So it was an eye-opener. Uh, for, for the record, the beer that we are drinking, it is afternoon right now, though there'd be nothing wrong if it was It's always earlier. afternoon somewhere, it's, but yes, yeah. it is afternoon. Um, in that whole... Were there times when, in the early days, where you, you know, you, ha you have this epiphany, you have this, I I'm going to do this, this is going to be great. Um, then did you have those nights of doubt where it's, I should just go make IPAs and stouts and, you know, have, have a real brewery? Or was it just, you were always so committed that it was never going to, to deviate from? Well, when we first started... Very few people were doing this. I mean, as you said, it seems like not that long ago, but as far as craft beer, it's been a millennia, and nobody was doing this, very few. As I said, Cantillon was just starting to come uh, into the country maybe a few years before that, in the mid-90s, and people were not familiar with what we were doing. It was a very tough sell. So there were a lot of days and nights where Laurie and I were very concerned about the future of our business. Would it stay in business? How, we had a few employees, uh, our, our, our son, uh, his fiance, and uh, we were concerned about just staying in business, paying our bills, keeping our house. And so there was a lot of that, whether it was like, do, what do we do? Do we start brewing IPAs? I mean, that's not really an option if the bank's going to put a lock on your door and not let you in. <laughs> yeah. So, no, we didn't really think about, about the course that we were on. We were more concerned about would people start to appreciate the beers that we were making. And we kept winning awards and getting articles written about us. Other brewers got inspired to get into sour beers and eventually it became kind of a small within craft beer, but kind of a movement. So there was never really that those thoughts that you say about switching to Porter and IPA, but yeah. there was a lot of concern about the viability of the business in the beginning. You mentioned before uh, an analytical approach and a tasting approach, and, and I think that I'm curious to hear in those days, and even still, how do you communicate 
Like, how did you communicate? How did you convince people, you know, to to taste the beer to begin with? And then, when you have a sour beer, or you have a wild beer, you have uh, an oak aged beer, you have something that is not what our brains, especially in the U.S., is, is has been uh, dialed into thinking what beer should taste like. Um, some of the beers that you've made in the past are so far away removed from some of those other beers, and you know the light lagers and even porters and stouts and IPAs and that kind of thing. Um, how did you communicate, and how do you continue to communicate the language of the beers that you make? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and it's one that I'm not really sure. What I try to do is I simplify things. I try to have two or three descriptors on a beer if we're at a beer event. Uh, festival or tasting that people can identify with uh, with my team when we're when we're tasting beer and we're trying to I'm trying to teach people about beer and blending uh, what we need is a common language and so what my brain says is a certain flavor might not be what your brain says that flavor is so if we only have the language we could be talking about two different things and saying the same word but if we're drinking the same beer and I say, I think this fruit or whatever it may be, spice, uh, a coffee orchard at night, whatever the flavor or aroma is, and then whatever you're tasting and smelling, your brain can say, okay, I didn't think of it that way. I thought it was old cigar or leather. And we can have these conversations and we can develop this language about what this is. Uh, so there's two different things, to answer your question, two different avenues. If it's a festival where you just need some quick descriptors, something people can identify with, um, hoppy, fruity, sour, you know, those sort of things. What fruit is it? Is it mango, passion fruit, guava, those kind of things? Uh, or is it uh, a panel where we're talking about blending, where we can get a little bit more descriptive and a little less pleasant and flowery, but more like, what does it really smell like? And uh, the third would be like sales sheets would be, be a kind of a hybrid of the two. Take the pleasant, but maybe a little bit more in depth. But I mean, are there are there things that people should be looking for in these beers, um, or are we all over the are, are we all over the place these days that pretty much everything is on the board and we well, can be open to any sort of you know existing food flavor and try to apply it to. Or are there certain things that we should be looking for when it comes to sour? No, I don't think there's something that you should be looking for. Okay. I think that it's important to, and this is what I try to train my team about tasting, is just think about sort of, you, you, you actively think, but you actively also don't think and see what comes to mind as far as what are you tasting? What does this taste like? What does this smell like? So it's not things that should be there. I think that that's uh, too defining. I believe that beer should be fluid. It's a liquid. It's constantly evolving as far as these styles go. There are definitely things that are off flavors. Oxidation, mm -hmm. generally not good, but sometimes in a really big porter or stout, some sure. sherry notes. An aged barley wine, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that's going to expresses sherry. If it tastes papery and like cardboard and like you just got a paper cut on your tongue, yeah. that's never good. So the same is true with sour beers, is there are flavors that just aren't good, uh, or at least to my preference. And that's where the line is, is like where is your preference? Like enteric bacteria, 
I think is bad. I don't think it has a place in any beer and not in sour beer. So if your beer tastes and smells like a poopy diaper, I think that's not great. How do you, though, because there are people who will line up and buy bottles of it and trade of you know trade beers that taste like that online and uh, you know all of that is there does there need to be a more formal education or is there no accounting for taste is there every accounting for taste if everybody has their own uh, I mean you're an expert right. in this like you're, you're somebody who is who has dedicated their career you know to this and so I, I would hope that people would take what you're saying to heart but there's also going to be people who are like yeah but you know I like poopy diaper and a lot of people can't taste that sort of thing. Sure. I mean, and working with Andy Parker from Avery, I mean, he can't taste butyric acid. So he works with a team of blenders. I mean, and their barrel program since they had moved to the new facility is just phenomenal. I mean, the beers are phenomenal. But through, you know, tastings and education, he's found out he's got a blind spot that he can't taste. And everybody has them. Yeah. And so I, as an quote unquote expert in the field of sour beers is I have a real hard time with boxes. I don't color within the lines. The comment I get back most from any competition I enter is great beer doesn't fit the category. So I can't really say what the category is because to me, if you're going to brew within the category, you're missing the whole point. There are tons of beers that do that. There are tons of breweries that do that. But if you're trying to think outside of the box and come up with new things and exciting things that people haven't tasted before, combinations and flavors, then it doesn't fit a style. There are no guidelines, but there is what tastes good and what doesn't. And that's what you know, really great chefs work with a lot, too, is flavor combinations, subtlety, balance. So I would say, if anything, the beer should be subtle and balanced. But that said, I've been doing a lot of really hoppy sour beers where it's all Whirlpool edition, all dry hop, and they are sour and complex, and the hops just express themselves as all sorts of fruits and flowers, and it's beautiful. Not necessarily subtle or balanced, but beautiful. So that would define the category is beauty. Okay. No, I like, I haven't, that's a, I like that. What have, um, where do you find your inspiration when you're coming up with new ideas that don't fit into a category? You're, you were just telling me uh, in an email about a, a collaboration you have coming up with uh, uh, Monkish uh, pretty soon that sounds uh, really kind of interesting. Um, are we allowed to talk about that? Absolutely. Okay. Cause, Hi, I mean, Henry. I, I've already started Hi, talking Henry. about it. Yeah. Um, you gave me a look for a second, like I might have uh, said something I wasn't no, supposed to. No. But it sounds—it sounds, it sounds uh, just on paper like this really fascinating beer that I, I can't even wrap my head around what it's going to taste like. And I, I don't want you to, to, to talk about that if, if, if you will. But then, uh, like, where do you find inspiration for, for for new creations? Well, that's an interesting question that gets asked of me a lot and I, I don't have a solid answer other than you know where does creativity come from and I think that the creative mind is a sum of all of your experiences interpreted through however your electrons, neurons, whatever they are put things together 
And there was an interesting thing on NPR about that and how individual neurons, and it's, they don't really, it's, you're not thinking. They all come together as some sort of collective to make these thoughts that let you identify, is this coffee in a cup or is this beer, is this IPA, what is it? And so inspiration comes from my whole existence, I would imagine, and everything that I've absorbed in that. And so for a particular beer, where that may come from, could be anything. I mean, I could be outside, I could be skateboarding, I could be paddleboarding, I could be talking to somebody, I could be listening to music, I could be smelling some food as I walk by a restaurant, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not really sure. It definitely comes from working with other brewers. When you work with other people who do what you do, uh, working with either whether it's chefs or brewers and talking about flavors and um, creating a synergy that is more than the sum of its parts and what do you want to do to bring this element in and that and actually there was just uh, hmm, that uh, article I didn't finish reading but was about it was titled faking it was about creating flavors using other ingredients to mimic the, the flavor the, the uh, article in craft beer and brewing yeah oh thanks yeah it's yeah. a Josh Wicker piece yeah yeah and so online now everybody exactly and I, I read half of it okay. um, and then I got distracted doing my TTB uh, report of operations which had to be done by the end of the day so the um, the inspiration it comes from everything it could be music it could be food it could be conversations with other brewers conversations with non brewers I do know I do know a few non brewers and uh, not many though which is <laughs> and uh yeah, or as I said, uh, just out uh, paddleboarding, out in nature, and just your mind goes clear and then comes together around an idea. So this beer that you're making with Monkish, yes, is oh well, we actually we have two beers okay. that we're doing with Monkish right now. One is a beer, the primary ingredient, other than malted barley, of course, uh, would be lentils. And the other is based on the banh mi, the Vietnamese classic sandwich. So how do you get the flavors of a banh mi, uh, which has so much going on with it, into a beer? I mean, are, are you going the, the, the normal, or, or I guess the, uh, the somewhat common route these days of going out and just buying a whole bunch of banh mi's and throwing it into the mash, or do you try to find the raw ingredients? Do you, like, how, how do you... When you're, I, I'm always curious to, to hear a brewer's take on making a beer that's supposed to taste like a familiar food. And there's some folks who will just use certain hops or certain spices um, in a way that tricks the brain into thinking. Um, you, know, uh, you know, doing a, a, a you know a dill pickle when using a little bit of horseradish or using uh, you know wasabi uh, to you know mimic. You know something else. Like, there's there's certain things that you can do, or oniony hops to sort of pull out you know some of those flavors instead of actual onions. So right. when you're creating a beer that is supposed to mimic a food, right? What what's the approach that you like to take? Well, I I, I think I would like to make a distinction is that th these beers were inspired by different foods, not meant to mimic them. And there are okay. some people who do that, mimicking most excellently uh, here in Michigan shorts. Mm -hmm. They make great beers that are inspired, but also are mimicking, like peanut butter and jelly sandwich and key lime pie. Key lime pie, yeah. exactly. And so these beers aren't designed to do that. They are inspired by it. 
that, and so they have the same flavors, but it's not supposed to be the same as eating a sandwich or having a falafel or whatever. It's inspired by that. So with the banh mi beer in particular, what Henry and I did is we designed a recipe that would evoke those flavors for the, the bread part we used a lot of different wheat malts but yeah sure we threw some bread in the mashed tun and some bread in the kettle and it turned out to be disastrous as it usually is when I go to brew it monkish it's kind of a it's a joke around the brewery now so I usually go out to LA and we brew the beer there and like all hell breaks loose and it's a shit show <laughs> and then I figure out okay we don't want to do it that way and we come back to Dexter and we brew it and everything goes you know reasonably well the lentil beer, Henry was so upset he, that I had ruined his kettle, but it's, I think it's still <laughs> fine. He's still making fantastic beer on that kettle. Uh, so it's ab- about that, and then it's also about natural and raw ingredients. I don't use any flavorings or extracts. So for the banh mi beer in particular, I chopped a bunch of jalapenos, a bunch of daikon, a bunch of carrots, a bunch of cilantro, and the the trick is where do we use those how do we put those in to the beer so the flavors carry through but are not overpowering at the end of the day we want a really drinkable beer that has some of these things that evoke the spirit of a banh mi not necessarily again in your face because my goal and I love beer and I like drinking beer my goal is not to make a beer you take two sips of and you're like oh that's great I'll have something else now, please. So you were saying the key is when you have one of these beers, you don't just want to take two sips of it. Yeah, absolutely. We're trying to design beers that are flavorful, imaginative, exciting, and drinkable. So you're going to want to finish your your glass, whether it's a tulip glass or a pilsner glass or a pint glass or a coffee cup. You want to finish that, and you're going to want another one. Whether you have another one or not, you know, I don't know but you're going to want another one. You have a real almost testing ground uh, these days with all of the restaurants, with the various restaurants that are uh, uh, in, in, in the group now. Uh, you know, people can come to a brewery and they can see, um, you know, see what you have and they can, they can give you real-time feedback, but uh, serving beer at a restaurant, I think, is, is a, especially when, it, when it's yours, is... You're opening yourself up to a larger group of people that might not ordinarily come to your brewery. Do you take into account um, beers that you make that go out to restaurants? Like, do you, do you think about them different differently than you would something that's going to go to a bottle shop or a festival or uh, just be at the brewery tasting room? Um, yes and no. I mean, we definitely have our... Uh, ten barrel system that we do a, a lot of specials, pub specials we call them in the brewery, and it, it is very different. But it's also not real time for us in the production facility because the restaurant locations are remote from the production facility, and we don't necessarily have the face to face interaction with everyone that comes into our restaurants. So that part of it is the same as any other brewery. But we do have the ability to come up with ideas that, I, I don't know how to ex- describe it exactly, but 
we do think about things a little differently. We have a little bit more freedom uh, with the pub special beers to be, I mean, it's, it's weird for a person that does the sort of beers that I do large scale like we're talking about brewing with lentils and stuff yeah uh to be like we can be a little more off the wall it's like well, how do you get more <laughs> off the wall than making the lentil beer it's like i don't know chickpeas maybe <laughs> and so it allows us that but i would think more importantly it, it allows us uh, two things is that we can experiment with different ingredients for the brewers different hops getting in uh, different hops and doing single hop beers so they really can get a feel for the smell and flavor of that particular hop, uh, bringing in different malts and doing beers that really accentuate those. And again, really interesting, great beers that people want to drink and drink more than a, a glass of, but allow the brewers to develop as far as their palates go and their uh, ability to think and conceptualize beers. What it also allows us to do is that we have this really neat program for the pilot system is anyone in the brewery, in the production floor, or in our restaurants, although you know, I don't think anyone from the restaurants has pursued this, and maybe it hasn't been communicated, but anyone on the production floor can come up with an idea for a recipe, and they can present that to our lead brewer, or to myself, and we sit down with them and we talk through like what do you what are you trying to get and as you, you mentioned home brewing we have a lot of people who do home brew still uh, on the production floor so they have some idea of malts and hops but as far as the specifics go and the, the efficiency of our system and all that they may not know that so they'll sit down with either myself or Caleb and we'll walk through the recipe we'll design that and so anybody on the production floor can have an idea for a beer Assuming it's reasonable, because <laughs> you know we're not. There's there's some beers that I, I wouldn't brew for whatever reason, but assuming it's a reasonable idea, we'll take that forward through production, and they get to be there and help on the brew day on the system, and then that beer goes out to all of our pubs, and that's a beer they made, and they can go to one of our our restaurants and sit down at the bar and say, I designed that beer, I brewed that beer and now I'm drinking that beer. And I think that's a really neat thing that I don't, I don't know if a lot of other breweries are doing that sort of thing where they're allowing literally anybody. You know, some guy who drives a forklift all day in warehouse can say, you know what, I've been think, thinking about beer, I've been moving all these cases for the last couple of years, and what do you think about this? And we'll sit down and we'll work out that recipe, and then he gets to brew it. For a guy or who, she. Sure. For, for, <laughs> for a guy who, who earlier said uh, you don't like staying inside the box, you like coloring outside of the lines, what, what is an example of a beer that you don't find reasonable? Um, I, that's a great question that kind of puts me in a corner. <laughs> I think that unreasonable would be things that aren't going to taste Good. Okay. And doing things for um, the like say, shock value beers. The shock value beers, sure. Okay. Um, okay. Right brain, the pig's head beer. Sure. Really? Yeah. Does the beer taste better because you put a pig's head in it? I, I don't I don't know. Right. Um, the, with with all due respect, Russ, great guy. Of course. Yeah. But, yeah. but, but 
does it taste better? What is the value of using that particular ingredient other than to shock people? So I guess that would be that what I was referring to. Not that specific beer, but that kind of a approach to brewing is yeah. what can we put in this that is just going to be ridiculous. Putting a kitchen sink in the kettle just right. to say we used everything and the kitchen sink. Boiling with the kitchen sink. Yeah. Really? Has, make- has somebody done that? I'm sure Probably some, I'm sure has. somebody's done that. Yeah. I'm actually going to do it next weekend. <laughs> just so that you can say that you've done it. Yeah. Put in everything uh, and the kitchen sink. Uh, if somebody has found that, you can uh, uh, shoot me an email at johnhall at beerandbrewing.com and uh, uh, we'll, we'll let Ron know uh, all about it. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like what style it was, how yeah. many IBUs. Right. You know, where, just when exactly do you add the, the kitchen sink? Uh, I would put it in at the long? beginning. Would you? Okay. Yeah. You put it in with the mash? Um, no, I would just like like a first wart hop. Okay. <laughs> is it ceramic or is it uh, is it is it stainless? Like where where do you go with this? Well, it depends on what sort of flavors you're trying to introduce. I mean, if you want a little bit more of that metallic bite, I'd maybe use something and keep the brass pipes attached to it. But otherwise, I would go stainless because. It's clean, it's neutral, it's cleanable. Oh, and you could heat it up and throw it in like rocks, like you're making a Stein beer oh, only with a kitchen yeah. sink. Look at that. This yeah. is uh, <laughs> see now I'm now I'm starting to think that this isn't unreasonable. You're you're you have like this brewer's twinkle in your eye right now, uh, talking about this. Just give me a blowtorch. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. That's 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 the most fun. Yeah, I, I want to get back to the restaurants though because I I, I find it really interesting in that. Brewing as a business is still incredibly tough, and it continues to become uh, harder. And Much harder. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, harder than it was in 04, even with an idea, uh, you know, like yours. Um, and it seems like diversification uh, that that most. If you're going to be a brewer these days, you can't just be thinking about your beer. You have to be thinking about other avenues, other revenue streams, other ways of just getting in front of people. Um, is, is how, how is the restaurant, how is this born? How is this concept and, and, and this path for you guys uh, realized? Well, I think there's a couple of different points in that qu- question that could be addressed. And I think all, that yeah. what, it's all about the, the size and scalability and where you are as far as what you need to be a profitable and successful business. A lot of smaller breweries are able to just focus on their tasting room and and uh, that. With us, we all of a sudden were at a medium size. We probably will do about 10,000 barrels this year. And we found that all the shelf space was disappearing. All the chain store placements were disappearing or shrinking. SKUs were shrinking. Uh, taps were not available because as the number of breweries approached uh, 6,000 is now over 6,000. Yeah, yeah. Over 6,000. And folks are all about local and fresh, and that's fantastic. And so it's completely normal and ex- what you would expect. So we were thinking, what do we what do? We do? And so to, to do that, we started opening our own restaurants and pubs to be in front of people so that we can, our beer is from Dexter, yes, but we are at the restaurants, all, a lot of locally sourced meats and 
vegetables, produce, all that. Well, yeah, vegetables, produce, right? All that sort of stuff. Uh, it allows us to become a part of the local community, and it allows our beer to become a part of the local community. So now in Detroit, we're not a brewery from Dexter. We're a brewery in Detroit. We're a local business. Traverse City, Ann Arbor, Chicago, we're now a local business. We're another local business. and We're all connected and we're part of the community. And so what it helps you do is build a community and be part of a community. And so that is what our focus with the restaurants is, is going to a, a, a community and saying, we want to be a part, we want to help. We're going to have this fantastic restaurant. We're going to support this community. And it's, yeah, sure, we get to sell beer. That's great. But it's also really about supporting communities. I mean, that's one of the main reasons we went into downtown Detroit um, was we wanted to be part of that community. We want to help the regrowth in Detroit and the rebirth and just really be a part of that. And that was one of the main reasons we chose that location. And the thing is that, that I, I, I've realized with, with your restaurants, because I've been to, to, to a few of them now, I haven't been to Detroit though, but they feel different from each other. It's not like walking into an Applebee's or it's not like walking into a McDonald's where it, it, it's cookie cutter. It, it seems like you have adapted to, to the locale as opposed to making the locale adapt to you. Is, is, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone is different. What I've tried to instill in our company is this idea of organic growth and so our beers are cha constantly changing uh, as our bacterial cultures in our barrels and our fooders change and grow the beers are changing and growing the, the concept of what our, our company is is changing and growing what each of our restaurants is is constantly kind of evolving and retuning and uh, the menus have you know, similar elements in them, but they also are different. We give our chefs and our GMs a lot of freedom to create, you know, their vision of what they want their restaurants to be like. And so it's all, I think, about organic growth. And that's, that's kind of what Lori and I have tried to do, is to instill that, like, you plant a seed and it grows and you can kind of guide it and maybe if it's viney, twine it around something, but it's gonna grow and it's gonna be natural. I've always been a fan of the grass in the cracks in the sidewalks, in the driveways, and just that natural growth taking over. It's a great segue because I wanted to talk to you. We're, we're here in Michigan. Um, uh, you're usually here in Michigan, I'm just visiting. But it, it does seem that this state has embraced all aspects of beer making. So not just breweries, but also raw materials as well. And that, uh, you know, while there's still work to be done, I, I think on the legislative side, as, as people have been telling me, and getting state governments a little bit more uh, interesting, we've seen other industries, you know, hop growers, uh, you know, maltsters, uh, uh, grow in the last couple of years and, and, and come online, you know, thanks to the breweries, but also sort of thanks to, you know, this, this, this organic growth and this, uh, this desire for local. Um, you know, Mission gets, gets, gets some attention, maybe not all that it deserves, but you know, how, how do you describe what the scene in Michigan is like right now versus where it was just a few years ago and where it has the potential to go? Well, 
referring to raw ingredients, I think that what most people don't know is that Michigan has the most, second most diverse agricultural industry in the country, second to California, I believe. And maybe there's one other state. Maybe we're third now. I don't know. We also have the most coastline, too, so except for Alaska. So most coastline, second or third most diverse agriculture. It's a good state. There's a lot of good things. And people uh, are industrious. So we have agriculture. We have people who see an opportunity. They see the growth in the craft beer industry. Uh, and they want to be part of it. So they start growing hops or... Uh, malting barley and I think that it's it's a phenomenal thing like the way hops have changed just within the last three years the quality has been so great lately uh, Matt Brinlinson at Firestone Walker he's always not always sorry sorry Matt uh, but he's <laughs> has in the past sorry, he doesn't listen. Yeah. trumpeted <laughs> Michigan Chinook in particular and it's a fantastic hop it just tastes like guava at its best and so and as more and more people in the agricultural industry are focusing on brewing ingredients the local brewers want to buy them because they want to support Michigan businesses and it's this kind of nice circle and so I guess we just need like somebody to make bottles here because we have all our labels printed in Michigan as well and all of our cases and carriers made in Michigan. Uh, you know, Michigan malting barley and, and we've bought a lot of spelt, a couple pallets of spelt last year. We'd like to see more of that. And hops, we're working with YCH and our other hop contracts on how do we balance this out with our desire to buy more Michigan hops, but we're already contracted a few years out. Um, you know, with Washington and Oregon hops, and how do we switch back, or not back, but switch away from that, but in a partnership way. I mean, I'm not trying to damage anybody's business. I'm just trying to support Michigan growers. Do you find that that, I mean, what does that speak to you as, as, as a brewer, right? Is there a better sense of satisfaction when you can use those logos, when you can have that personal relationship where... I don't know. Like, is well, there is there is there something deeper than just the the ingredients themselves? I think personal relationships are very important and they're great. And yeah, it's deeper than the ingredients. There's definitely a satisfaction that comes with that. But it's also a uniqueness. I mean, it's a terroir. I mean, the hops grown here don't taste or smell like the hops grown in Yakima or Idaho. Or, I mean, anywhere. And so they. They taste and they smell different, and so it's a it's an ingredient. It's something to play with, and you have personal relationships with with a lot of the brokers. There's just a lot of back and forth of this hop is available, but not to you. I mean, I have a lot of brewing friends around the country that I'm like, hey, I need some Galaxy, and um, they're out of Galaxy. <laughs> And they're like, really? Because I just called and, I, and I'm like, you have it on contract? And they're like, no, I called up so-and-so. And so it's just a lot of gray area in the commodities market, yeah. if you would, on that sort of stuff. And so it's really nice when you can just talk right to the grower and he's like, I'm expecting I'm going to have about 1,000 pounds. And, you know, maybe it's less, maybe it's more, but 
it's you're talking to the grower there's no shady like magic box behind doors kind of stuff going on so that's nice yeah with all due respect to all of our other purveyors (laughs) 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 we love all you guys too (laughs) um i I like how you catch that um i i want to switch gears as we start to to wind down a little bit and and we were talking before there's there's a lot to celebrate uh in the industry there's a lot to be excited about uh with beer and and outside flavors and, and, and outside things. But there's also some, some really real-life consequences that we have for uh, beer consumption and uh, being around beer. Uh, you know, I cover the industry, you're in the industry. Uh, we, we, we drink a lot, we're around a lot uh, of uh, uh, late nights and early mornings and, 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 and pints in between. And we were talking uh, before we started recording just about the renewed effort, I think, that, uh, that people have to put on moderation on health on uh recognizing that this should be just a part of life as opposed to you know our whole lives uh, as, as it were and i think that there's a lot of folks uh, i hope who are listening who uh ha- have recognized moderation but who might also you know might uh uh spend more time at the bar than they do out for a run and and this is something you seem passionate about and you've had personal experience with yeah, uh, absolutely. I'm I'm not not sure exactly how to approach it because I haven't had a lot of conversations about it. But it is something that is becoming more concerning to me about people's consumption, alcohol use, and uh, yeah, I I drink a lot of beer. I really drink a lot more beer. It makes my doctors worried, but I'm also very concerned about having a, a a healthy lifestyle. So Lori and I eat really well. We exercise a lot. I run a lot. Uh, in the wintertime, we go to the gym a lot, that sort of thing. And what what I've been trying to talk about with other brewers, smaller brewers, younger brewers that uh, I interact with are, are just conveying some of the joys of exercise and being healthy, going for a run, and how that makes you feel. And it's been really great to see uh, photos that they send me. I quit social media a couple of months ago, so I don't see it on Facebook or Instagram or anything, but so they have to actually send me photos of when they go out <laughs> for a run or when they ride their bikes to work in the snow. Um, and I think these are just things that we need to be aware of uh, in the industry, but it's not necessarily just us. I mean, we are working with beer, we're around beer, alcohol, spirits, wine, all that sort of stuff all the time. Uh, it's, you know, regular folks too that, uh, <laughs> civilians as I like to call them, <laughs> that need to be concerned about customers, that yes. and their health. And just really, diet and exercise should be a healthy part of every life. And so it's been really inspiring for me to see, oh, and, um, Bike, yeah, I said the biking in the snow, but also biking to the top of the mountains in Appalachia. Um, I don't want to call anybody out on it, but it's wonderful to get a text from one of my brewer friends when they just biked uphill for 20 miles and just be like, a year ago you weren't into doing that stuff, but now, in part, just as I think Lori and I helped 
the country and the world rediscover sour beer and the flavors that you can make. I think that I'm reaching out to a new generation of brewers about it's not just about drinking and staying up late. It's about going to bed or it's about drinking, going to bed early, getting up early, going for a run, riding your bike, riding your bike to work, just walking around the block, whatever, but being fit and active as uh, long term going to really benefit you. So yeah, fitness is I've come late to it, but it's a thing I'm pretty passionate about. Something we often think of, myself included, um, as I've been trying to be better, but uh, but but have continued to, to miss the mark. Uh, this is at the beginning of the new year as we're recording this, so I hope everybody. Uh, yeah. yeah, the gym is so much more crowded now. Yeah. thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's <just> like <laughs> it'll it'll is, thin out by February. This is Don't not worry. the time it's, to get yeah. your life together. Do not worry <laughs> about it, but just think about it. Um, <laughs> Ron Jeffries is the founder of Jolly Pumpkin Artisan Ales here in Michigan. Uh, you can learn more about his business at, you guys have a website, I imagine. Yeah, we do, but uh, like, like like I visit my own website, okay. I don't know, but we'll just you say jollypumpkin.com. Sure, let's hope. Yeah, I, I should have looked it up in advance. Uh, I do know that you can read the story that Ron mentioned uh, that Josh Weicker wrote on brewing with spices along with uh, other spice-related uh, features from a recent issue on beerandbrewing.com. You should check that out. You should also subscribe to the magazine while you're there if you don't already. Uh, we are coming to you from... Kalamazoo, Michigan at the Michigan Brewers Guild. Our thanks to them for having us out here uh, for that. And if you have any questions for me, you can always reach me at John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beerandbrewing.com or on Twitter at John underscore Hall. And we'll be back next week with a whole new episode. Thanks so much for being here, Ron. Oh, thank you, John. And thanks so much to all of you for listening and we'll, we'll talk to you all soon. Cheers. See ya. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.